I'm someone who very much believes that that real freedom looks like Black people doing whatever the heck they want with their time and their money. Um, I always say as someone who loves covering Black people and loves writing about Black people, much like you, Damon, I also have total respect for Black people who don't want to write about racism, who want to write about the stock market, who want to write about China, or who want to write about all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with Black people, because maybe some of this is depressing for people. Welcome back, everyone, to Stuck with Damon Young, the show where we want y'all to show us the money. And not no scholarship, but straight cash, my nigga. Straight cash. So there's no topic that speaks to America's reckoning of its past and its present, and also some people's refusal to admit that a reckoning is even necessary in reparations. And not just whether Black Americans should receive it, but who, and how, and how much, who would pay. Just recently, the nation's first ever reparations task force was organized in California, and economists estimated that Black residents of that state, just that one state, might be owed $800 billion. And so to grapple with these questions and more, I speak to award-winning journalist Yamish Alcindor. And then, to cap today's very, very special reparations episode, I'm joined by Boston University professor Syed Grundy to help counsel a listener who learned his family owned slaves and wants to redistribute some of his wealth to black people, but doesn't know how. All right, y'all. Let's get it. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Essentia is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. Yamisa Alcindor is an award-winning journalist who is a Washington correspondent for NBC News. Yamish, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So you might not remember, we actually met. This was pre-pandemic 2020, Nicole's rooftop party. Do you remember that? I do remember that. I also think I met you at the Route 100 one year. Maybe then too. That last year, pre-pandemic, pre-lockdown, was just a blur. It was. Like, it reminds me of, like, people talking about their experiences before the Great Depression. It's definitely the before times <laughs> when we would just, like, drink off each other and just be open up doors without washing oh, yeah. our hands. And I'd come home and just go to sleep and not scrub my body down. <laughs> just less anxiety. Much Let's less put it anxiety. that way. Less anxiety about existing, about moving, about breathing people's air, even though, you know, maybe we weren't making the best decisions all the time, but still. Yep. It's a different time. So here's a question. 
that I've had for a minute. And I'm, I'm hoping that you could maybe give me some clarity about this. So let's say today is National Reparations Day. A bill got passed, Congress, president, whoever need to sign off on it, right? And you're getting your reparations check today. It's going to hit your account. Okay. How many pairs of Balenciagas are you going to buy today? One, I'm going to be hyped that the Haitians got it because I'm not Black American. So I'm going to be one, probably buying a Haitian flag. <laughs> um, okay. I will probably buy maybe two pairs. Two pairs. Two pairs. Okay. I, um, I, I was thinking somewhere between five and nine and I landed on seven. Landing on seven, just grab a different pair for every day of the week. So getting back to that question about reparations, um, I'm thinking back to a conversation that I had about eight years ago. I was in Marvin in D.C. And the topic came up, reparations. And there's about five of us in a group talking about it. And I brought up that it felt like a thought exercise that didn't really have a basis in reality because I didn't necessarily see how it could be distributed if something like this were to happen. And so in the conversation, you know, someone pushed back on that and was like, you know what, that's a limited way of thinking about things because how do you know that we might not invent a mechanism for it to be distributed? You're already trying to prevent the solving of a problem because you can't think of the solution. And so you're just not going to address the problem at all. And after that conversation, I had to recognize that, well, he was right. And I think that that's been the response that people have had, you know, when other people have brought up the idea of reparations, well, how we distribute it, how would this happen, who's going to pay who. How would you have responded to that 2014 me if I had brought that question up to you? Uh, remind me if that's the year before or after ta wrote his piece, because part of me thinks that the first thing I would have done is hand you ta piece, um, The Case for Reparations, and had you really understand the depths of which inequality was baked into the system mm-hmm. in a way that was conscious to make Black people's lives harder. And then I would also have invited you to, to, to look at sort of reparations, not just as checks, but as all the different ways the systems can be reorganized so that Black people can really get a a chance at this thing we like to call the American dream. And I would have challenged you to say that it's not just cash, that there are so many other ways that reparations can exist, that it might be hard to think of it um, as something that's doable, but it's obviously doable because we did it for the Japanese in America before, and we've done it for other populations around the world. So there's definitely a way to do this. So I'm I'm glad you brought up Tanahasi's piece. Um, and for context, this is uh, the case of reparations, a piece from Tanahasi Coates. It was a cover story for the Atlantic. It was like thirty thousand words long, just a very in depth, very nuanced, very rigorous uh, take on essentially the case of reparations. Would you mind expounding on reparations not necessarily just being cash? What does that mean for someone who is just entering the conversation? just trying to wrap your heads around what exactly is possible. Well, okay, so there are two things I can say about this. The first is reparations doesn't have to just be handing people a sum of money because that's not the way that America worked. It wasn't just that Black people were told, well, you have to pay this amount of money just to exist here. In fact, it was that free labor was extracted by people and it's hard to quantify that. And it's also not as easy to say, well, we're going to give you $100,000 because we know we live in a country where $100,000 
in Alabama could maybe fund your life for two, three years, $100,000 in San Francisco might help you out for a couple months. Mm -hmm. So the idea that we could really sort of quantify and monetize the consequences of what happened to African-Americans is very, very hard to think of and very, very hard to do. The other thing I would say is I learned about this study after I got back from my honeymoon. So I got married in 2018. I'm in bliss. I was like, Black love. My husband's this beautiful Black man. I come back. I'm just sort of sort of just levitating, thinking about our family and our future. And this study comes out that says, even if you are Black millionaires, even if you make it to the millionaire status, the next generation, because America has so many discriminatory practices, that child could end up still in poverty. So even if you save all this money and this generational wealth that African-Americans often talk about to, to kind of be the vehicle that we can help our, our, our descendants get out of the sort of racism that so many people deal with, that can be stripped away just based on the fact that someone will criminalize your child or someone will take advantage of your child or a bank will just decide they don't want to loan to your child or to your descendants just because of the way America is set up. And they basically said that you could being a child of two black millionaires is almost equal to being the child of one single poor white woman. And it was a reality check for me that money is not the thing that solves things. Of course, money can help. Mm -hmm. There's no walking around the fact and talking around the fact that giving people money and financial stability absolutely helps their lives out. But it's not a fix for racism because the racism and discrimination in this country is much deeper than just giving people money and then allowing America to sort of do what it does. Because if you don't fix the real estate industry, if you don't fix the healthcare systems and the education systems and all the things that come together to sort of confluence of racial discrimination, you end up in a space where you really aren't fixing the problem. You just sort of let one generation have some nice sneakers, but their their descendants are going to be back in the same situation. <laughs> yeah. And you made some great points. And as you were talking, I'm thinking about also just how, you know, we talk about just income disparities that exist um, in America that have existed, that are intentional and have existed for decades, centuries, and how even um, if one of us is lucky enough to make six figures, even like a seven figure sort of income and how that six figures, that seven figures just doesn't exist the same way it does for your typical white person, you know, and even going back to your analogy about how 100K in Mississippi is different than 100K in DC, right? Um, 100K a year for for me is different than 100K a year for my neighbor, uh, for my white neighbor, because 100K a year for me is good, but I'm also paying for school tuitions for nephews. I'm also letting you know, people borrow money who need it, you know, and, and again, I'd rather have it myself than have them go to like some, you know, some check cash in place or whatever to get it. But again, it's those, it's a conversation that can't exist without the recognition of these, this grand disparities and how, like you were saying, money doesn't really solve that. I'm curious when this first became an issue that you were passionate about. Was there a catalyst or was it just like a general slow burn of understanding where you just came to, you know, to be passionate and, and, and recognize that this is a thing that needed to happen? Well, I mean, I'll say as a reporter, it's hard for, I'm not an activist, so I can't say that I felt passionate about reparations needing to happen. I definitely feel passionate about understanding mm -hmm. why reparations for some people is something that they want to happen. And I think my understanding of reparations as a vehicle, a possible vehicle for equal treatment in America really came from ta -Nehisi's piece. I consider myself a civil rights supporter and had 
been covering sort of civil rights issues for a while. But in 2015, 2014, when that piece came out, the case for reparations, it was the first time that I saw somebody lay out in a really, really direct way why reparations in particular was something that this country should be thinking about and mulling over. So Ta-Nehisi's work absolutely sort of started me on the road to even understanding reparations. And then I became a congressional reporter. And of course, H.R. 40 was going through Congress. It's something that had been percolating. It's this congressional bill that is asking for Congress just to study the issue of reparations that has yet to be passed. And it's something that has come up over and over again. So in also learning about the Congressional Black Caucus and meeting some of the players over the years that were really, really integral in that piece, John Conyers being one of them, he's now passed away. But there are a lot of people, Sheila Jackson-Lee has now taken that up, the congresswoman from Texas. So I would say that that's the two things that really helped me understand, hey, maybe reparations could be something that actually could help. Also, I should say, I'm a graduate of Georgetown University. I bring that up because Georgetown, one of my friends, her name is Rachel Sworn, she was a reporter at the New York Times. She wrote this whole piece about how Georgetown was sort of saved by this selling of enslaved people and that it really did in some ways turn on its head the history of Georgetown. As someone who had graduated from that university, they talked so much about Jesuit ideals and about the Center for Social Justice and about sort of how the school was always centered on trying to be an education for the whole person. We never talked about the history that the school had with slavery. So to have that be brought up and then to have the university have some really deep conversations about how to rectify that, settling in part on allowing free tuition for the descendants of those people who were sold, um, that to me also sort of opened my eyes. I'm like, oh, this is a place that I love, that I went to school with. And this is sort of reparations in real time happening on a campus that I visit all the time. When you pull back and you just think about all the tentacles that white supremacy has, right, and all the different ways that it is affected, just how we live, how we survive, how we eat, how we exist, how we even party. Last week, there were a couple memes, a couple tweets about how back in like the early aughts and like the 2010s, niggas used to like dress up to go clubbing, <laughs> wear their suits and wear their ties and, you know, wear their hard bottoms to go clubbing. And it's like, y'all were doing a doogie, y'all, y'all, were doing, y'all were getting sweaty in a club and business casual. Like what, what, what was happening then? Well, what was happening was that a lot of the clubs in the country had these dress code requirements where you couldn't get in with jeans, you couldn't get in with t-shirts, you couldn't get in with a hat on or with gold chain showing or whatever. And so you had to wear these clothes in order to get into the club. So it wasn't something that people just decided to do because they felt like wearing hard bottoms and a tie to the nightclub. It was something that was a result of a racism and we reacted that way. Are you familiar with the situation that's happening in California right now, the land-based reparations? I, I think it's about this, this space called Bruce's Beach, right? Where um, a Black family owned this beachfront property. Uh, the state of California took it from them. And then California gave it back. And then I guess the family sold it back to the state. Are you familiar with this at all? Yes. I'm familiar with that. It was, you know, this family that could have been the Hiltons that bought this resort and then basically eminent domain, the, the state took it back. And then years and years later, the, the state gave it back to the family. And then, of course, they, they sold it back to the city. Yeah. And I've seen some criticism of the family's decision to sell it right back. Right. Because it's like, well, you own this property, you could develop it, you could do whatever with it. Why would you sell it right back? And, you know, I, I think that even that speaks back to your point about catch yourself isn't enough. Right. Because 
even with this family, even with this property, is that, okay, well, we have all this property. What are we going to do? Who's going to manage it? What are we going to do with it? Do we have the infrastructure in place to, to take care of this? And perhaps for that family, the most pragmatic thing to do in that circumstance was just to, you know what, we're just going to cash out because the, the amount of bandwidth and amount of physical labor it's going to take to maintain this just isn't worth it. I mean, I saw the criticism of the family for selling it. And to me, I thought, well, isn't the whole point of reparations and cash to freedom? Isn't it that if I, I'm not part of that family, but who am I to say that their best decision wasn't to cash out? If that's what they wanted to do, then that's what they should do. And if reparations came in a check of $100,000 for every single Black person, and one person wants to buy 100 J's, and the other person wants to wants to invest and put it in, 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 the, in the stock market, and another person wants to buy a house, who am I to decide that the person who bought the J's isn't doing their best life? Maybe that person's dying of cancer, and the thing that's going to make them happy is getting some J's before they get in their casket. Like, I'm someone who very much believes that that real freedom looks like Black people doing whatever the heck they want with their time and their money. Um, I always say as someone who loves covering Black people and loves writing about Black people much like you, Damon, I also have total respect for Black people who don't want to write about racism, who want to write about the stock market, or who want to write about China, or who want to write about all sorts of other things that have nothing to do with Black people, because maybe some of this is depressing for people. So to me, I, I see that family, and I think that's what's best for them. They obviously had a group decision to make, and that's a decision that they made. Some people said, oh, they should have leased it. But like, do we know what that would have entailed? Do we understand w- all of the different things that would have gone into that? Um, and it's not as if you can go back and do history and they can turn into the Hiltons tomorrow, right? There was this idea at the beginning when they had this family land and, and this family vision and these people who hadn't been broken down by their own cities that they could become like the Hiltons or they could be like the Waldorf Astorias. But that that has passed. We can't go back in time and give them not only the sort of financial and, and infrastructure, but also just the, the, they, they, they're no longer living without the trauma of having that snatched away from them. We don't know what that did to their family when you had this amazing idea and then it was taken away from you through eminent domain. What that does for generations of people in that family, we'll never really know. So for me, I, th- I, I think it's freedom. Yeah. And again, to your point, it doesn't account for how traumatic of the experience that could have been and how that trauma is passed down yeah. through through stories, through generations, even through DNA. And, you know, you get to a point where you're just like, nah, forget this. I just just let me just not think about this anymore. Let me cash out and, and move on and actually, you know, perhaps pursue some sort of freedom because this thing that has existed for generations, this trauma is an albatross that's just weighing us down. You know, so like I, I get that. You know, we joked earlier about the Blue Seagas, but again, I think that to your point, you know, we we can't try to dictate what people should do or what freedom means to different people. You know, there are people who are, you know, the LLC as people who are all about generational wealth and, you know, buy black, own black, which is great, right? If that's your bag, but that's not everyone's bag. And, you know, we should at the very least have the opportunity to, to decide which path, which way we intend to go. Um, what do you think is the greatest roadblock? Or what are the roadblocks that exist right now that are preventing, you know, any sort of reparations from from reaching the level where it could possibly happen? I don't know that there's the biggest roadblock. I think that there are a number of roadblocks. One, of course, being just the idea that um, we're living in a country in this moment after the death of George Floyd and the backlash against sort of 
um, this country wanting to really understand racism. We're now dealing with a country that does not want to talk about racism in a lot of places. It doesn't want to deal with things like African-American studies AP courses. We don't want to deal with the bluest eye in schools. We're a country that I think right now in this moment especially with some conservatives and some parent groups that are really trying in some ways to say, let's move past even the conversation around the consequences of slavery and act like in some ways it hasn't happened. Um, so I think that there's, there's that literal sort of everyday, in the moment, contemporary challenge of just, we are a country that's not really in the mood in big ways to deal with just the consequences of slavery like we were the summer of 2020, soon after George Floyd's death, when we were a country that was more open to it, um, to having that conversation. I also think there's this real question of just how to do it. And there's a, a real question among Black people and white people about what does that look like? Is it fair? Um, and I think that that's a really big roadblock, just the conversation around, well, how does this even happen? And sort of, is it really going to make a difference? So the big questions are just, um, and I think that, that that is something that even Black black people and white people in some ways share this deep skepticism that reparations can be the thing that could help this country. And I think the third thing is just, who we, we are, we were struggling in this country to define what victim, what the victim of slavery is. Is, is, is the victim of slavery someone like me who's Haitian American, whose parents immigrated here in the 1970s? I still deal with racial discrimination. My brother, who's also 100% Haitian, still gets stopped by the cops, right? But is he the proper descendant of someone who, who should get reparations? Or should it be only the people who are from America who were the descendants of the people who were enslaved on these soils. Because of course, we're also, as Haitians, descendants of slaves who were, of course, enslaved in the Caribbean. So I think there's also just a big question of who actually deserves to get this, especially because we're in America where people are mixed. As much as, you know, all this Ancestry.com, people who think they're white turn out to be not so white. People who think they're Black turn out to be a little bit, a little bit more vanilla than they thought they were. So I think, um, I should say, I should pause here to say I did an Ancestry.com test that said I was 94% Black. Um, and if that made me happy okay. because it's someone who's Congrats. very, very fair Congrats. people, especially my mental <laughs> in. Um, that's an A minus. Yeah, so congratulations. That. But, that's I think, a-. <laughs> um, but I think in some ways there's this real question of well, who does who are the descendants of slaves? Because in reality, you know, Henry Louis Gates has shown us that the people that we think might not be descendants of slaves might be descendants of slaves in in some way. I mean, we could we could just solve that by bringing back the paper bag test. You know, we could just do that, <laughs> right? Just on a national scale, like if you know if you are. If you're lighter than a paper bag, then you know I'm sorry. You know, maybe try again next year. But if you, you know, if you pass, if you pass a test, then you get your check, <laughs> right? And it, and I guess it depends on the darkness of the paper bag too, because you know they they make them <laughs> in different shades of brown now, right? Um, now your point about I guess America's refusal, right? You know, to have this psychic reckoning of what this country actually is or what this country has done to the descendants of, of slaves. That's like, okay, we had that seven hour stretch in the summer of 2020 with, you know, with George Floyd when people were on board, right? And then, you know, shit went back to how it usually goes seven hours later. And so with that in mind, I'm wondering if there's a way to circumvent that part of it because that part, the national psychic wrecking is something that I am not confident will ever happen. And so is there is there a way to get to this goal without that part of it? I mean, I think that that's the question that our country's been trying to reckon with maybe since the end of the Civil War. Can we get to a place where we can actually say, let's have a real conversation about 
the consequences of enslaving hundreds of people, thousands of people, and what that really did to our country. Um, I think it's a very hard conversation to have. I don't know that we will get there um, as, a, as a reporter, just based on my own reporting. On when I think when I talk to civil rights activists, they are coming from such a place of of wanting to talk about this and of, of being passionate talking about this. And then when I talk to people who are on the other side of that issue, they don't want to talk about this. They think that it makes you know we've had we've as a country we've been having conversations. I would say since the since right after the summer of 2020 that said, well, what does it mean to have a real conversation about white privilege? Who 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 is impacted by that? I also think as someone who's interviewed a lot of Trump supporters, we 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 don't recognize maybe as much with this idea that when you tell white men in particular or white or white people in particular, you are the privileged ones. You are the ones that are supposed to be sort of, you are the ones that have this invisible leg up. And then you also have people who are living in deep poverty in West Virginia, in Western PA and are trying to wrestle with the idea. Well, if I'm so privileged, why do I live in a trailer park? If I'm so privileged, why am I drinking water that's dirty? Or why am I drinking water that's not safe? Because for there, obviously there's the Flint, Michigan, but there's also the West Virginia and Appalachian um, areas. So I think it's fair to say the data proves that Black people still have, when you look at just sort of education or healthcare or disparities, Black people are still dealing with a juggernaut issue. But it's not that white people don't deal with that because there's also really, really poor white people that don't want to have that conversation because they're like, well, why should we have a conversation about racial discrimination and not about the economic issues of this country? Because in a capitalist society, someone has to be taken advantage of. Someone has to be at the bottom for someone else to be at the top. So I think it's just it's, it's a hard conversation to have and it makes people uncomfortable because no one wants to, I mean, at least some people don't want to talk about poor white men who don't, who who aren't being able to have the sort of privilege that we associate with with, a lot of times with with moneyed white men at the same time that we have, that there's something I want to talk about the conversation of, even if you're rich and black in this country, that doesn't mean that you're any safer from the police. So I think there's also that issue. So I I think it's just a hard conversation to have. Well, I feel like before privilege had its, you know, more larger cultural meaning in the zeitgeist, as a catch-all to describe people who Maybe their life isn't easy, but their status doesn't make life harder. So having male privilege doesn't mean that your life is easy. It just means that being a man doesn't make life harder. Having white privilege doesn't mean that your life is easy. It just means that being white doesn't make things harder. And I I feel like maybe that word, we could maybe think of a different word. Because when I think of privilege, like before this current definition, I think of like Queen of England, (laughs) Silver Spoon, Butler, like people who who use summer as a verb, like that's <laughs> that's how I think of privilege, right? And so I can understand people having like a pushback when they hear that word. And you know, particularly, you know, I'm I'm from Pittsburgh, you know, Western PA, and I've joked before that that Pittsburgh is Wakanda for white people. But the the, the thing that kind of breaks that that analogy down is that there are some poor ass white people here too. Right. <laughs> like I'm, I'm not far from West Virginia. We are literally in the Appalachian Mountains. I know poor white people, you know, and and I, I could see how that could be a hard sell to someone who has been poor for generations. Right. Whole family lived in the same house for generations and trying to tell them, like, you know what? Black people have had it harder and it's up to the government and your descendants to take care of us in some capacity. And, and again, I, I recognize that being a hard sell. Right. And again, I, to your point, you know, trying to find a way 
to communicate that in a way where people are ready to actually have the conversation about rectifying that wrong. I mean, I think you need, obviously, you need sociologists, you need scientists, you need um, economists, but you also need linguists in this too, to just figure out exactly how to communicate this. And writers to figure out exactly how to communicate this because that gap is real. Yeah, and I think you need the will of everyday people to want to be interested in educating themselves about the sort of consequences of slavery, but also the consequences of setting up a capitalist society. Um, and that's, all, that. you know, I think when you look at sort of this moment that our country is in, where education, my husband is an education reporter in Virginia, and, and you look at the sort of conversations we're having just on the education front, it really shows you that we're at a, we're at, at a place in this country where we just cannot agree on even sort of how we talk about race, how we talk about slavery. I mean, you, we've all heard stories about um, the bluest eye being banned, about Ruby Bridges now. There's a Disney movie about Ruby Bridges, who was, of course, this young Black woman, who, this young Black girl who integrated um, a school that, that, that she somehow maybe we, kids aren't ready to watch a movie about her, even though it's made by the Disney Channel. So it's, it's this really, I think, hard thing that, that we as a country are trying to figure out how to have this conversation without anybody leaving feeling offended or feeling hurt, when in fact you're going to have some feelings of hurt. And talking about the consequences of slavery is emotional. It is tough. It's a very hard conversation to have, especially as someone who's West Indian, as who's someone who's Haitian. There has to be the, also the conversations. I grew up in Miami. There's the conversation of West Indians and Black immigrants who come here and look down at African-Americans. So it's not just that there's this conversation being made among the races, but there's also an ethnic conversation to have. Because I know people in my family who have come here and said, oh, well, you know, Black Americans, what's their deal? We're able to go to college and get PhDs and they're, they're still living in the projects. Well, it's not that simple because everyone needs to get educated on what the consequences of slavery do. So it's a, it's a really hard conversation to have. And it's not only, I would say, an interracial conversation. It's also a conversation across ethnicities and across class. And I don't, I don't know how we get there. It would be great to cover when we do get there, but I'm just not sure how we get there. Yamish, thank you so much for joining us today. This is great, informative, appreciate. Good seeing you again. Good seeing you too. Thanks for having me on. Up next is Damon Hates. The section of the show where I talk about shit that I hate because I hate a lot of shit. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between, offering quality care and support virtually, in person, and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Aetna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com slash healthierhappenstogether. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health, and Aetna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush. 
which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. So I was out the other day with my kid, one of my kids. I forgot which one of the kids it was. It might have been both. It might have been this one. That doesn't matter. And there was a struggle, right? I think I was trying to get one of them into the car and they were having a tantrum, which kids tend to do. You know, my kids are four and seven. They're right in a prime age for unusual and unprompted tantrums about. I mean, these kids, like one of them had a tantrum in Target the other day because they wanted some candy while he was literally holding a motherfucking Snickers. Anyway, tantrum is happening. Someone on the street makes eye contact with me and gives me like this knowing look like, ah, yeah, because I see you're going through it. Yeah, it sucks to be you. And I'm going to need people to stop doing that fucking shit. When you see a parent out in the wild who is struggling with their children, children are having a tantrum, something's happening, don't give them a knowing look. Don't give them like a sigh. Don't try to give them empathy. No, don't make eye contact. Pretend that parent's a motherfucking pit bull. That if you make eye contact with them, they're going to fucking chew your esophagus out of your throat. All right. Don't look at me. Pretend like I'm not there. Like who wants more attention when there is something that is aggravating going on? Like it reminds me of when you're in a restaurant and a server maybe drops a glass or drops a plate and it breaks on the ground and people start motherfucking clapping. It's like, why the fuck would you do that while someone is having a moment that they wish that they weren't having? So again, I know you might think that it's like a collective community thing. Like, you know, I'm with you. I see you. It gets better. Now, fuck you. Don't look at me. Don't look in my direction. Don't say nothing to me. I'll keep going about my day. Pretend like I'm a velociraptor. Keep your eyes to your motherfucking self. Thank you. Up next for Dear Damon, I'm joined by the homie inside of Grundy, Boston University professor. And, you know, since this week is the special reparations episode, Morgan, the producer, what we got brewing in the reparations pot? Yeah, the reparations pot is hot this week. A listener wrote in and said, I just finished the biography of a famous family ancestor who was a slave owner. My family benefited mightily from her crimes, and I can afford to redistribute some of our wealth to the descendants of those she wronged. What do you think is the most beneficial thing I could do? Try to find the slave's descendants? Scholarships for kids in the county where she lived? Is there a nonprofit famous for private reparations? Saida Grundy. Thank you for uh, having me and fielding me this question because I am kind of fascinated by questions of, you know, white justice that actually costs white people something, right? So racial justice in the way that we talk about it often doesn't cost white people anything, right? It's the idea of like, oh, I bought this book for $24.95. Now I am absolved. You know, thank you, Robin D'Angelo, for, you know, anointing me. It's like we do it like evangelism, right? 
you know, as either, you know, you are somehow washed in the blood of a very, very easy buyout. So this is actually great because this is kudos to this white person for actually thinking about this. Also, all white people who have ancestors here before 1865 benefited from the slave trade. The slave trade was not just the actual owning of human beings. The entire reason we have a financial system globally, you know, Wall Street, you know, Amsterdam, London, Paris, et cetera, that was to manage the money of slavery, right? So there were human people who were owned as property, but those people, much like houses today, were bundled into securitized bonds. So we sold those bonds all over the world, much like we sell mortgage bonds. Um, so everyone in the globe who uh, benefited from slavery who was not a colonized person or an enslaved person themselves. And we also excluded Black people from Wall Street. So this is a private wealth question, but I'm putting in the context of more public wealth. Are there philanthropic organizations who help redistribute stuff? I don't know if this is their terrain. This seems like you go to the estate lawyer, right? You go to your probate attorney mm-hmm. and you say, add these Black people to the trust. If you are wealthy enough to be talking about family wealth, you're wealthy enough to have a trust. And those Black people should be added to that trust. I think that's actually quite simple. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I appreciate the context that you added. Shout out to context. Shout out to reading. <laughs> Smart niggas. I appreciate you. But I feel like that was a very robust, very rigorous response to a question with a simple answer. And the simple answer is just give me your fucking money. <laughs> yeah. And I don't mean me like yeah. in, a, in, a, in a collective. <laughs> I mean me. <laughs> Give it to me. <laughs> like if, yeah. you, if you can't find these descendants, if you can't find mm-hmm. the people that your family enslaved, the descendants of mm-hmm. those people, you found me, you emailed me. So just give me the money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That could be a reparation strategy. Just the first black person you see. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Just don't, yes. don't do any research. Don't do any studying. Don't do any genealogy, you know, whatever. Just, you know what? You see a nigga in the street. It's like, you know what? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't I haven't distributed my reparations yet. So this is your lucky day, Rufus. <laughs> this is very timely because Randall Robinson just died like last week. And Randall Robinson was um, a very, very radical activist who wrote a book in the 90s called The Debt, which I still think is the Bible of the reparation conversation. And Randall Robinson said so clearly, he's like, reparations is not necessarily about benefiting me or you, right? Like, we're straight. You're even straighter than me, son of a bitch. But like, we're straight, right? It's about lifting the Black poor because the reason they are the Black poor is because of the wealth extracted from them, right? Wealth is a relational, you know, situation to poverty. The reason we have poverty is the reason we have extreme wealth, right? So, you know, this white person, whatever, you know, justice they think that they should be doing at this phase of their family, go back to the county where your family owned Black people and redistribute, I mean, actual checks, right? Or actual parts of trust, actual dividing up of your stock holding, et cetera, your assets. Redistribute that to the Black people in that county, because I assure you that in that county, Black people make up disproportionately the poorest people in that county. And the reason they are the poorest people in that county in 2023 is because of your punk-ass ancestors. I think that's a great point, Sai. I also think, you know, just getting back to the question that the person asked, like, I think that asking the question is noble. Right. You have to admit that, like, you know, coming into some money, having some money, wanting to distribute it. Mm-hmm. But there's a part of it that 
annoys the fuck out of me whenever I hear it. And that's the suggestion of like a scholarship fund. Yeah, 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 right? yeah. Or the creation of like a nonprofit. And it's, yeah, yeah. You know, and, and when that happens, that's almost like, well, I have this money. Yeah. And I don't trust you enough. Exactly. To do. Like, I, exactly. I, if I give you this money, you're just going to go buy seven pairs of Balenciagas. <laughs> you're going to get a whole bunch of steaks. Exactly. You know, you're going to go to Red Lobster. And those are all things that I would do. Yeah. That I, I might do today. Yeah. Right. And there's this, like, well, I can't trust them to make the right decision. So, you know what? How about I make some incentive-based thing? Like, you know what? Here's a scholarship fund, right? Here's a nonprofit that I'm creating. I don't even know what the fuck the nonprofit would be. Mm-hmm. And I'm not necessarily saying that this person is doing this, right? But I, I think that that is a, like a larger thing that white people tend yeah. to do sometimes yeah. when they're thinking about, okay, ways to help or ways to rectify whatever wrongs. It's like, you know, you don't actually give money to a person. You throw money at like a, yeah. a some theoretical in the future sort of achievable. Mm-hmm. And that's just not cool. That's just not, that doesn't do anything. When when Bernie Madoff robbed all them people, as he'd been doing for decades, right? So these were absolutely multi-generational, wealthy, you know, white families. No one was like, you know what we need for the Bernie Madoff victims? Scholarship <laughs> funds. They literally took those, you know, it was, you know, Madoff had stole $100 billion, something like that. They literally reclaimed all of his assets. They reclaimed everything they could. They, I mean, they they didn't get nearly, um, you know, all of it. But the, you know, few billion they got back, they absolutely redistributed that directly. So I think that your your take is really keen because to cover this up in this moralistic thing of like scholarship claims actually is a cover up the, of the crime itself. The crime itself is theft, right? It is the theft of Black bodies. It was a theft of Black futures. It was a theft of Black generational wealth. And it did not end at slavery, right? Uh, white people in those, you know, the slave owners rolled right into sharecropping planters, right? It did not end there. We're talking about 100 years post-slavery that Black people still had their wealth robbed by these very families. And that wealth was robbed through white violence, right? So when Black people try to do things like, you know, start a business, they were, you know, killed for that, et cetera. So yeah, all that to say... I'm with you entirely that telling Black people how their money should be spent is key to the paternalism of white racism, right? Telling Black people that somehow we don't delay our gratification in the way they would. First of all, white people invented Black Friday. They don't delay their gratification at all. And it also is a way of really tampering down the violence of the crime itself, I'm still thinking about the point you made about Bernie Madoff and if someone would have tried to offer them a fucking some scholarship. It's like, yo, do you have do you, do you have our money? Like, yeah, no. Right. But we but we have these gift cards to right. Georgetown University. Redeemable. Yes. You just need to wait 30 years for them to mature. Yeah. You got these gift cards to Yale if you want to be like, we own Yale. <laughs> like my family owns Yale. What the fuck is wrong with you? Exactly. Our last name is literally oh, Yale. Literally. <laughs> right. Elihu Yale was literally our grandfather. <laughs> and philanthropy is extremely paternalistic towards black communities, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, philanthropy is, you know, often about having the upper hand on deciding 
um, what Black people, you know, should and should not do, deciding, you know, which Black people should and should not be valued. And also getting people out of poverty, I think as we understand now, like (laughs) the whole, oh, here's a college scholarship for you. Like, do you realize how many more immediate economic crises there are to even get someone to that level? So you're dangling a carrot that's not reachable if you don't meet immediate needs. And it's like this white woman has her immediate need. I'm sure she buys all the Lululemon she wants. I'm sure she gets guac on whatever the fuck she's ordering. It's like all her immediate needs are met. Like no one is telling her your family's wealth should actually be delayed to you, right? She's been enjoying that wealth her entire life. Her parents have been enjoying it. Her great-grandparents have been enjoying it. Mm-hmm. No one told them to delay anything about inheriting that money. Yeah, and this is a digression, obviously, but you know, I, I think that it's a bone yeah. that I have, whatever this sort of conversation arises. And there's like this suggestion that, you know what, it actually reminds me of the conversation that existed for years about college athletes. Yeah. Where people were reluctant to pay them, but they were saying, like, oh, well, we invested all this money into the locker rooms yeah. and into the equipment and into the, the dining halls for them. Whatever. It's like, yeah. okay, well, you're surrounding them with money, but you're not actually giving, giving them. them some of the money that they're generating for their labor. And again, it's this paternalistic aspect of white supremacy that just suggests that we just don't know what to do. That even as they are showing some empathy or showing some sort of reckoning with the past, there's still that, like, you know what, we still have to be white. Yeah, <laughs> we still yeah. we still have to Real be talk. white in the way that we attempt to rectify this thing. Instead of just giving you money, we have to put conditions around the money that we distribute. Absolutely, that I mean, this is you know we see this you know historically over and over and over again, where part of how white supremacy was done economically was not only delaying black people wages, but choosing how they would be paid. So black women domestics, you know, oftentimes you know in a white family they actually might not be as flush with cash as they purported. But part of being white and middle class was having a Black woman work for you. So there's all these stories of Black women who, you know, come payday and, you know, uh, Karen and Becky and them will be like, well, you know, I'm paying you in these, you know, in these old clothes. And Black women will be like, no, give me your money. But again, the white thing, like, shouldn't you value these things? These are clothes. But I, you know, I, I say this also in terms of how, I've seen this done even in my field. So when Black people are research participants or anytime we're studying communities, disadvantaged communities, there's many instances in academia where we switch to, instead of giving people cash, I remember, because the day I remember going off in a faculty meeting as a grad student, I remember they said, oh, we're going to stop using cash, you know, stop using, you know, actual redeemable vouchers and start using Target gift cards. I was disgusted by this. One, name me a fucking hood with a Target, mm-hmm. right? You cannot pay your babysitter with Target gift cards. You cannot pay the cab with Target gift cards. That's not money. And in fact, you're taking a form of payment that should be actual currency and you're forcing people to become consumers. That's what really pissed me the fuck off, right? Martin Luther King said it best to invoke Dr. King. He said the vote did not cost white people anything. The real mountaintop for him was economic justice. And that was about an economic justice that was bottom up, not about Jay-Z 
and post-needling and making rich Black people richer. He didn't give a fuck about millionaires. What he was talking about was economic justice for the Black bottom. Mm -hmm. Speaking of getting money, let's say this person who wrote in, let's say they discover that you are one of the people that their family, you know, you're a descendant of one of the people that their family owned. And so they're, they're going to give you the check. Mm-hmm. First question is, you know, today's check day. How many pairs of Balenciagas do you buy? Um, <laughs> okay. And the second <laughs> question is, what, <laughs> what, what do you think is like a justified, like, we're talking about this, you know, in these nebulous terms about payment and, mm-hmm. and what's owed or what's due, but what do you think is an actual tangible um, if, if we're talking cash, mm-hmm, we're talking mm-hmm, money, mm-hmm. what do you think is an actual number to start with? So I would, li- I mean, I would be in the meeting with the probate attorney and that family's trust is valued at something. Okay. And someone who is, you know, I'm an executor of a trust now, you know, my sister and mm-hmm. brother-in-law, you know, put me on, you know, yes, we are black people with some trust. Ooh. They put me on, you should have a trust for your children, by the way, because or else they're going to pay an inheritance tax to get anything that you have, which is not the smart way to do it. You should actually have a trust and your children are minor. So you need an executor of that trust. I'm not saying it should be me, but. <laughs> I am not the one who lives in Matt Damon's condo from the departed. Like, I, I don't have that. I don't have generational wealth that you do. That is black wealth. That's black excellence lighting right there. That's black excellence sunlight. This, uh, yeah, the building in which I live, by the way, was an insurance company in the day. And if we know anything, the audience might not know this, but all banking and insurance companies in the United States are slave operated. They are slave-based industries because the thing to insure was enslaved human beings because the transport of enslaved people was extremely risky. And so you had states in the East were selling enslaved people to states in the West, right? So you had, you know, Maryland was selling, you know, to Kansas, et cetera. So that is why we have the American insurance industry. And as I tell my students, go to any downtown in America, the largest buildings are always going to be insurance and banking, right? Those are the two capital industries in our economy. And those are slavery-based industries. So me personally, I'm not getting just a check, right? So a cat, you know, if, if this is me, I'm telling this family, yes, a cash payment that should be here by the first or fifteenth, but also I'm talking about the trust. So we're talking about, you know, the trust is, is a number of assets that this family, if they have wealth like this, this is wealth that they never have to touch any principal. This is they are living off the dividends and interest of their assets, right? So if I'm the Black person who they owe, you know, and luckily, you know, I've had, you know, some financial literacy in my life because you're right, because my parents had enough resources to think about this. But I'm actually saying, no, you are putting us on the trust. The same sort of cut that you all get is what we're going to be getting. That can be dividends from assets in terms of investments. That can, you know, that can be assets in the market. That can be property holdings, et cetera. But this would, I mean, if it's, this were me, it would basically be like a divorce proceeding. We would be <laughs> splitting the assets. <laughs> I would absolutely treat it like a divorce proceeding. That, you know, and I'm going to say I'm a wow. partner. I, I'm going to argue with my attorney that the source of this family's largesse, the source of their wealth is actually my labor. So I'm going to argue with like an ex-wife. It's like, I'm going to argue with like, you would not be rich if not for my labor. 
Okay. I'm going to go real housewives. But then they come back. You wasn't with me shooting in the gym. But I was because (laughs) source income is actually something that gets argued in divorce proceedings, right? So you can say, okay, we're married and the source of the income in this marriage, you can argue like, well, that happened, you know, before I met you, but you can't argue that for slavery. So the source income is the enslaved people. So I'm winning. I'm Me and my attorney is balling. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and again, if they say you wasn't with me shooting at a gym, you could come back and say, well, we built the motherfucking gym. We built the actual gym. And yeah. every asset that family has held since was sourced mm-hmm. from enslaved labor that was not paid for. So if that family owned, you know, an ice cream store, if that family owned an insurance company, if that family owned buildings, I'm arguing that the source is all my family's unpaid labor. As someone who admires, you know, uh, Black legal scholars, legal scholarship often deals with the hypothetical. And I love this as a hypothetical. Like, if if we had laws, like reparations is not just going to be a government saying, oh, we're sorry. And here is, you know, a community center for you Negroes. Actual reparations is going to include the private sector because actual Black people are going to be able to bring claims against the actual white people who profited from the theft, death, and labor of their ancestors, right? So I know where the Grundy plantation is. I've seen it. The building still exists that was a Grundy, you know, the mansion on the plantation. I know where that is, right? I love the hypothetical of, and this is why white people don't want reparations, because it won't just be a public sector event. And we've done this for justice for all sorts of other groups. You know, Germany didn't say, oh, well, you know, this is just a government entity. No, actual Holocaust survivors sued Mercedes-Benz. They sued BMW, right? They sued Volkswagen. They got their money from private entities. Those are corporations. Well, these families were corporations. Mm. So I love the hypothetical of this because I'm actually going to argue there is no wealth in this family without the source wealth of my ancestors. I'm winning my case. I don't know about... (laughs) I don't know about y'all. So, you know, Balenciaga's great. We'll get those second, but I'm still winning my case. Okay. And so for the guy who's writing in, our advice, I think we agree that, you know, you should make every effort to find people. Mm-hmm. Do not create a scholarship. Do not yeah. create, do not start a community center. Do not give, you know, like a gift card to fucking um, Penn State. <laughs> Starbucks gift cards. No. <laughs> The Starbucks, Target, yeah. wherever. Just find, try to find the people. Try to find the people. Yeah. And whatever negotiations need to happen, need to happen. But you try to find the actual people. And it's going to take some work. You're going to, you're going to need people to help you. Yeah. Because you're, you're probably not going to be able to do this yourself. They're, you're going to have to actually, you know, spend some serious labor yeah. trying to find these people. But if you are serious about this, then that's just the next step that you have to do. And I would actually argue that the finding the people won't be that hard because slavery was a business. So the ledgers on enslaved people were very, very meticulous, right? Each one of these persons was insured. We got, you know, census records and we have names, right? We have, you know, very we have the surnames um, that Black people often carried from um, whoever owned them unless they were, you know, sold around. Mm -hmm. So actually, this is just going to be a matter of going back to the county in which, you know, this plantation existed or counties and actually start looking at those deeds. Deeds of, I mean, again, planters, Southern planters, Southern slave owners kept meticulous 
records of their property as you would you wouldn't have a car you didn't know existed this was all on their ledger so and also you know to my point reparations is not an individual act it's a community based act so this person owes the black people in that county something something you know substantial Sayada Grundy thank you again for coming through it's always a pleasure you're welcome dear yeah I'm gonna go uh, buy some Jordans um, some Swisher Sweets. I'm going to do all the things white people don't want us to spend our money on right now. All right. Thank you. Again, just want to thank Yamish Alcindor, Syed Grunny for coming through. Great show. Great guest. Thank you all for coming through again and stuck with Damon Young. Remember, Listen, subscribe for free, only on Spotify. Also, if you have questions about anything, any topic, reparations again, Kyrie Irving again, airplane exiting etiquette again, hit me up at daredamon at crooked.com. All right, y'all. Stuck with Damon Young is hosted by me. Damon Young. From Crooked Media, our executive producers are Kendra James and Meredith Herringer. Our producers are Ryan Wallerson and Morgan Moody. Mixing, sound, and mastering by Sarah Gibalaska and the folks at Chapter 4. Theme music and score by Taka Yazuzawa. And special thanks to Charlotte Landis. From Gimlet and Spotify, our executive producers are Crystal Halls-Dressler, Lauren Silverman, Nicole Beamster-Bauer, Neil Drumming, and Matt Schiltz. Special thanks to Leslie Guam. Follow and subscribe to Stuck on Spotify. Tap the follow button and hit the bell icon to be notified when a new episode drops. Listener.